Hey everyone, I'm Jim Ambusky, and this is Conversations at the Washington Library. Virginia was home to many of the most famous rebels like George Washington during the American Revolution, but it was also a den of Tories who remained loyal to the British king. Loyalists in all the colonies rejected what they called the unnatural rebellion and resisted patriot forces as they tried to restore the king's peace to British America. In Virginia, a civil war raged between white colonists and slave people who sought their freedom and many more who just tried to stay out of the way. And when the war ended, many loyalists faced a desperate choice abandon their homes and seek refuge in the empire, or melt back into American society and take their chances with their former enemies. What can we learn by studying the disaffected in the American Revolution? What do we gain by looking at the revolution not as a glorious cause, but as a civil war? On today's show, we begin a two-part look at loyalism in the Chesapeake Bay region by talking with scholars who are working hard to reconstruct the loyalist experience in Virginia and Maryland. Dr. Stephanie Seal-Walters and Alexi Garrett join me today to talk about Virginia Loyalists and their world and their ambition to make documents submitted to the Loyalist Claims Commission by Virginians beginning in 1783 more accessible to the public. On our next episode, Drs. Ben Bankhurst and Kyle Roberts stop by to chat about their Maryland Loyalism project, a digital archive they've created with help from their students to tell the stories of those who gloried in the name of Tory in the Revolutionary Era. Be sure to stay tuned for that conversation, which is coming soon. But let's get started now with the state that Mount Vernon calls home by uncovering the Virginia Loyalists with Stephanie Seal-Walters and Alexi Garrett. Steph, tell us about why Virginia Loyalists excite you. Basically, when it comes to loyalism, I start. I was interested in loyalism as early as my master's program. I knew I wanted to study Virginia because I love the American Revolution. I knew I wanted to write a thesis on Virginia. And I asked my advisor at the time, Dr. Kyle Zellner, I was like, well, what, what do you think I should do? And he's like, well, everyone does Virginia. <laughs> Virginia is a very popular topic in terms of the American Revolution. He said, but you know, there's one area I've never really seen a phenomenal work done. And he said, and that's in terms of loyalism. And at the time, as a huge fan of John Adams, I actually wasn't interested at all in loyalism. And I started going through some loyalist claims records, um, just because that's what he told me to kind of look at. So I started, you know, looking through so I could tell my advisor I'd done what he told me to do reading these stories and memorials, they were really, they just grabbed you. They were breathtaking um, to hear these different experiences of suffering and what happened to them during the war, what happened to their children, um, what was it like being a soldier in the British army, or what was it like being a wife whose husband was tarred and feathered or imprisoned during the war. And it was really these individual stories that just captivated me. And as I started digging even further, I realized that the historiography on loyalism, my advisor was right. There was this massive gap in Virginia, whereas, you know, New York kind of puts their loyalists on display. So does the Mm -hmm. Carolinas. Um, Georgia's getting that way too. And when you would read major works on Virginia during the revolution, there would always be this, you know, one kind of sad line to loyalists. And then that was it. And I was like, I knew there had to be more of a story. I don't want to even say it felt kind of like a, um, 
felt kind of like a political cover up by historians of Virginia that were just not going to talk about it. Right. And I was like, there has to be more to this. So as I started, you know, asking these questions, I got interested. I found there are thousands of loyalists living in Virginia and the United States during the war. Um, and each one of their stories just kind of became important to me and to get their voices heard. So yeah, that's what I've been doing with the last decade of my life. I've been dedicated um, to this group of people who have really kind of been neglected by the historiography. As you rightly say, we have a lot of work on the Carolinas, certainly New York. Alexander Hamilton, for God's sakes, is defending loyalists in the aftermath of the war in New York courts and, and whatnot. But with the exception of those who heeded Lord Dunmore's call in Virginia in 1775, and then, of course, the burning of Norfolk and whatnot, you don't hear much about Virginia loyalists. We're going to get to a lot of what, of what you just uh, elaborated on here in a second. But is it your sense that the, the ignorance or the, the willful ignorance, I guess you might say, Owing to the fact that in the United States, as it came to be, Virginia is probably the most important state for a long time. Yes, I think so. I think a lot of it is this interesting perpetuation of this argument that Virginia was the most patriotic state at the beginning and at the end of the war. Johnny Selby writes that in his book, The Revolution in Virginia. And he says, you know, Virginia is it. You know, this is where patriotism exists. And not very many people have wanted to complicate that narrative. We like as a public thinking of Virginia as being this beacon of patriotism and how it is throughout the war. And I think a lot of people have neglected to look at it because sometimes I don't I don't think people want to know this other mm. side of the American Revolution, especially a side that really is going to complicate that Virginia narrative. But one of the reasons also, too, that you don't see a lot of loyalism happening, say, between the 76 to 81 period, right? Like you see people join Cornwallis in 81, even though, you know, we can talk about that later, about how Cornwallis is disappointed with how many people come out. Dunmore certainly has a ton of loyalists who follow him. But the majority of scholarly works written on Virginia really focus on the Tidewater and the Piedmont. Loyalism in the backcountry is rampant during this time period. So when you're looking, you know, at what's modern day with County around Fort Chiswell, there's lots of organized loyalists in the backcountry. For the Tidewater and really the Piedmont, there's this really interesting there's this really interesting love of politics and hierarchy in the colony slash state. If it's very obvious, of course, by July 4th, 1776, that Virginia is on this patriot bandwagon and you have to choose. Do you want to remain a part of the hierarchy and a part of the correct side? Or do you want to come out as a loyalist? And a lot of Virginians the hierarchy is far more important to them than their actual political beliefs. So they go quiet. They don't necessarily support patriotism, but they become closeted in their loyalism. And these are the folks that you're going to see who are very active around 1776. They go quiet for a few years. And then in 1781, when Cornwallis comes through, all of a sudden they're back in action again. Well, Alexi, it sounds like Virginia was rampant with Toryism at one point. And actually, welcome back to the show. This is uh, what your second or is this your second time back on the program or third? I don't remember. Second. Yes, thank you. Second, but well, welcome back. Uh, pleased to have you. And speaking of making a choice, <laughs> why did you choose to study loyalists? What interests you about them? So I came at uh, my study of loyalists in a really back-end roundabout way. So um, when I was writing my dissertation, 
It was based on my master's essay, which looked at a central female figure from Tappahannock, Virginia, named Kate Flood McCall. And she was fascinating because she owned two nail manufactories in Richmond at, at the turn of the 19th century, um, one in Alexandria and one in Richmond. And she was a never married woman who owned many enslaved people and was the last surviving child of her uh, Scottish loyalist father, Archibald McCall. She was interesting to me because she never got married by choice. And her maternal grandmother was able to successfully petition for her and her father to come back to their Tappahannock estate after the American Revolutionary War. So her father was a loyalist, which I found interesting. So at first I thought, oh, maybe I'll do something with loyalist reintegration in the second generation because that's Kate. She retains her her class status back in her Tappahannock community. But looking at Kate, I was thinking to myself, okay, how can I make a dissertation out of this? So then I was thinking, well, I should look at other sort of proto-industrial enterprising women during this revolutionary and post-revolutionary era, kind of this proto-industrial era in Virginia. And then I was thinking about other women. And then I was thinking, what I'm really interested in is unmarried women. So this is really just this back-ended back roundabout way of coming at unmarried women in Virginia and what they're able to do with their property and what they're not able to do with their property. So I'm really interested in um, the femme soul versus femme covert uh, divergence at this time. So legally, if you're you're a married woman, then you are a femme covert, you're a covered woman, which means that technically in the eyes of the law, most of your property is, is uh, basically managed by your husband. Now, if you're a femme sole, you're a widow or you're unmarried or you're a single woman, then you can pretty much do anything that a man can do in the eyes of the law. So you cannot vote and you cannot serve on a jury. But if you're an unmarried woman, you can still sign contracts, own your own business, make your own money, choose to do what you want with your property. So I was thinking to myself, okay, what can unmarried women do that's different perhaps than married women? And then I was over in the National Archives at Kew uh, years ago at this point, and <laughs> I just came across the loyalist claims because of Kate's father. And then I came across some women in the loyalist claims. I was like, oh, wait, all of these women from Virginia who are making claims to the Loyalist Claims Commission are widows. And the reason why is because if you're making a claim in your own name, then you're the head of household which means that you're a widow, so you're not married. Or it means that you're never married, but I only found a couple of those women in the Virginia claims. So then I just basically said to myself, I'm gonna make a chapter out of this. Let's look at women from Virginia who are making claims in their own name to the Loyalist Claims Commission and see what they're talking about when it comes to their property. How are they relating to their property? What are they saying about their property? What are they saying about their enslaved people versus their real estate versus their other um, kind of household items? And that's how I came to study uh, Virginia Loyalist women and with the help of both Jim and Steph, but especially Steph, who helped me so much with this chapter, I was able to use her work on Virginia Loyalists to look at my women. So Stephanie found about 552 claims uh, made by Virginia Loyalists, and I found 35 of those. So about 6% were made by um, head of household women's, meaning widowed women um, in Virginia. So I studied those in my dissertation and came up with some interesting kind of gender conclusions and property conclusions. Well, you both referenced these things called the Loyalist Claims. And I talked a little bit about the Loyalist Claims Commissions and the process of filing claims with our colleagues, uh, Ben Bankhurst and Kyle Roberts, who are working on a Maryland Loyalist Project. But Steph, probably nobody knows this process better than you or the administrative 
nature of the Loyalist Claims Commission, which is essential itself to understanding how all this works and how people like uh, Archibald McCall and all the people, the 500 people in your dissertation are attempting to get compensation for property lost during the war. So let's start with that big picture. What's this thing called the Loyalist Claims Commission? Why does it exist and how does it actually work? The Loyalist Claims Commission is actually interesting. So before the Loyalist Claims Commission actually is created by Parliament, um, as early as 1776, and I'm talking before the Declaration of Independence was voted on and signed, loyalists in the United States were pretty sure things weren't going to go right for them um, in the war. They knew the Continental Congress was organizing. They didn't necessarily know that independence was imminent, but they didn't like you know, some events that were happening around them and they were scared. So as early as 1776, you see this kind of first wave of loyalism leaving the United States. A lot from Virginia, um, there's famous Virginians such as um, John Randolph, who leave in that first wave and they end up in London. Problem is, is when you are evacuating or a refugee, you can only bring so much with you or so much of your property that you can sell. So when a lot of folks end up in London, um, they end up in poor houses almost immediately. And the British government learns pretty quickly that, you know, this is, you know, and by 18th century standards, this is a drain on society. You know, all of these um, poor houses being filled up with loyalists. So um, people start petitioning the British government as early as 76 asking for help. They're like, you know, listen, we're here because we're ardent loyalists. You know, we left our home because we support you. You've got to give us some kind of financial compensation. So early enough, you see people petitioning the government to get some kind of response. However, it isn't until the very end of the war in 1783, um, with the signing of the Treaty of Paris, that the Loyalist Claims Commission is created in London, is enacted by Parliament. Basically, the British Audit Office is going to conduct a series of interviews of loyalists to see exactly, you know, what did they do during the war? What kind of merits, how much compensation and what they can do to basically make sure that loyalists don't remain kind of vagabonds in society? Well, at the very beginning of the Claims Commission, it mostly focuses on England and probably, I mean, London and probably, you know, greater England. And these interviews were conducted in person. People would go with copies of whatever records that they had on them. This can include, you know, deed records to property that they lost. This could include wills where they were. Um, it shows that upon, you know, their father or mother's passing away, they were supposed to inherit XYZ. And now that doesn't exist for them anymore. And this claims commission would make a decision on whether or not they would be compensated. And if so, how much? However, as the years go by, they realize that loyalists aren't just going um, to London or England. They're going to Scotland. They're going to Jamaica, Canada. Some of them are staying in the United States. So they actually send out loyalist claims commissioners to go and host in towns and things, places where you can go be interviewed. Every state has its own commissioner, and the commissioner has to be someone who was actually originally from that colony or state. So for Virginia, they have John Randolph Grimes, who participates in, you know, kind of these commissions going around Virginia, getting people to say what happened to them and then having compensation, you know, deciding on their compensation. But anyway, it wasn't just limited to being interviewed by a commissioner. Um, you could actually mail in and submit a claim. You see that happen um, in places where, you know, the Loyalist Claims Commission commissioners aren't really going to show up. Some of these come from the Virginia backcountry commissioners 
years, we're going to places like Williamsburg and Richmond, big metropolitan areas, you know, that would get a bunch of people, but you're not actually going to touch, you know, the folks in the back country. Um, same happens in Canada. There's some folks who write from, you know, far west of the St. John River and say, I can't make it, um, but here is my submission. And so that's how people would be able to submit claims. When it comes to the history of loyalism in a place like Virginia, um, you hear a lot of arguments. And it's not just Virginia, it's places like Maryland, Georgia, that while there must not have been a large loyalist presence or population because the claims are so small. So like Alexi said, um, we had over 500 Virginia heads of household apply to the Claims Commission to try to get some form of compensation. Um, When you're looking at a state like Virginia that's supposed to be the largest and most populous at the time period, that's a drop in the bucket, right? That's not that's not a very large population. So historians have sometimes kind of pushed aside this idea of population um, and attribute it to the loyalist claims. Like, okay, there's not very many loyalists because look, there's only 500 and some odd people applying. You know, obviously loyalism wasn't that big of a deal in the state. You also have to go back to that reconsideration of Virginia and how dire it must have been for some of these loyalists to make that decision if they were going to go to that claims commission meeting or if they were going to just try to remain anonymous. What's going to work out for them best in the end? Are you going to walk out in the middle of Richmond to a hall which has been designated to take loyalist claims in front of your community members and talk about your ardent loyalty? to get compensation, or which you probably won't get because the compensation rates weren't that great. Or are you going to remain quiet and anonymous? And are you going to try to, you know, become a part of society again and kind of forget that this whole revolution thing ever happened? Um, and in Virginia, in a place where, you know, reputation is everything, especially in the post-war, it's my educated assumption that a lot of people just decided to stay home. So I have a quick follow-up question because something that you said made me think, and I, you know, one of our senior colleagues, Maya Jasanoff, argues that about 60,000 loyalists go into exile after the war. But the majority of people who remain loyal, as you suggest, sort of tried to melt back into society. Um, And Rebecca Brandon, for example, has has talked about reconciliation efforts in South Carolina. Have you encountered anybody who chose to remain a citizen of the United States after the war, file a claim with the Loyalist Claims Commission trying to, in a sense, play both sides or get some kind of compensation? Not really. The more of what I'm finding are not necessarily the folks who submitted claims and tried to remain a loyalist. I'm finding people who did not submit a claim, but I know they were loyalists. <laughs> um, one of those being Thomas Taylor Bird, um, who's actually a captain in the Royal Ethiopian Regiment with Lord Dunmore. After the war, he tries to just acclimate back into society. He moves into around Berryville, Virginia. He's actually buried in Berryville. And he stays there for the remainder of his life. And he kind of just kind of quietly reacclimates into society. So that's kind of a problem with Virginia too, is when it comes to the Loyalist Claims Commission, and this is just a number off the top of my head, but I would argue 97, 98% of people are no longer living in Virginia or even the greater United States. They're in Canada. They're in New Brunswick. They're in Nova Scotia. They're in Jamaica, England, or Scotland. I found the exact same thing. Virginians are quiet. Virginia, they they very much, if you're staying in the United States, you want to reacclimate into society. You you don't want to kind of put this bullseye in your back to say that, oh, yes, I was a loyalist or I may even still be a loyalist. 
One of the most interesting other, you know, primary source materials you can look at is um, the post-revolution Virginia Gazettes um, that are coming out of Richmond. They have all of these stories about um, loyalists who are still living in North Carolina. They uh, they never talk about loyalism in Virginia because if you talk about loyalism in Virginia, that means you're acknowledging that they exist. They don't talk about it, um, but they do talk about loyalists who, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s are still kind of hanging out around North Carolina. And there's this one amazing episode where they talk about um, a suicide amongst loyalists who actually drowned themselves in a pond in um, Halifax, Halifax, North Carolina. I have never been able to confirm whether or not that actually happened, but it is in the Virginia Gazette. They say it happens. So it's almost like this interesting moment of, look, you know, look what these poor souls are having to do in other states. And you don't want that to be you, do you? Kind of an influence. Well, it really speaks to the kind of social pressure I'm sure they were facing in that period after the war, after they lose. (laughs) It doesn't go their way. Yeah. So, Steph, let me stay with you for a second, because we've been talking about these loyalist claims, of course, and the physical documents. And the actual records themselves are in the National Archives of the United Kingdom in Kew, which some of us have been to and actually have seen. But your primary experience throughout your entire dissertation has been working with them in a digital form. Can you tell us something about that and perhaps some of the challenges of access? Definitely. Um, so my first experience was actually using them in microfilm form. In the 1950s and 60s, the Virginia Colonial Records Project went around to places throughout Europe and microfilmed copies of anything that had to do with early Virginia. So, of course, the Loyalist claims um, were something that they copied relatively quickly. So I used the Colonial Records Project as a way to initially access these claims. I held a fellowship for a while at Rockefeller Library in Colonial Williamsburg, um, where I had the opportunity to, honestly, because of how much time I had, literally just make copies, <laughs> make a million copies of um, every loyalist I could find in the claims. And I had them in fantastic binders because even though I'm a digital historian by trade, I'm still a little old school. But of course, you know, sometimes even going through these beautiful binder systems, that wasn't enough. I was also fortunate enough to, when I lived in Northern Virginia, work at the Thomas Balch Library, which is a history and genealogy library that had access to Ancestry, um, Ancestry.com and Ancestry Internet. So um, like many graduate students, I did not want to pay the high monthly fees for Ancestry. So I use them on this library database. And that way, I will say Ancestry does have digitized versions. The majority of them are just copies of the microfilm, not the actual original. Some of them are originals, but the majority are coming from microfilm reels. So the microfilm, there was already this issue. Bless the people who run the Colonial Records Project, because I know they did their best trying to microfilm as much as they could in the time period that they had. But a lot of those documents are just unreadable, unreadable by the scan. You can tell that the originals would you know, be much easier, but this copy is just not good. So Ancestry didn't help me out a lot because I already had these records that I could not read. But then Ancestry, while it's great, they exist there. Um, you have to know the loyalist name in order to search for just to find the loyalist you're looking for. So if you want to see um, Maryland loyalists or New York loyalists, well, you're out of luck. You have to know a name in order to do a search. So if you want to look for all Virginia loyalists, you're not going to find it there. Or if you are, man, are you going to take way more time um, than just ordering a couple of microfilm reels? 
Well, and we're going to come to this in a bit, but I remember when I first met you and saw you present on this project, and I remember thinking, why the hell has nobody done this before? <laughs> and so I'm glad. And again, we'll talk about what, what you're interested in doing here in a moment. But yeah, and I've had some experience working with the Ancestry version and the Colonial Records Project, which that I think is an underused resource for Virginia history, or at least it's not as well known, I think, as it should be, certainly. But it, it's a challenging to work with these materials. And so when I was fortunate to go to Q a few times. You know, I've actually seen some of these records, but Alexi, you've been you've been to that delicious place uh, mm-hmm. yourself over there in the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, uh, and you've actually seen these volumes as well. And so, tell us a little bit about what it's like to work with the physical volumes. The physical volumes vary in size and scope, but luckily, when you're actually at Q or at the National Archives, they are physically arranged alphabetically within each state, so you can search by state, and then within the state you can search by last name alphabetically. The claims themselves vary in size and type. So some they have a lot of original claims. And if sometimes if these claims include land tracts or big indentured servant contracts that are associated with them, they're going to be physically very large files. And you're dealing with physically large pieces of papers that you have to unfold onto a large research table at Q. But then I would say most of them are uh, copied. They're uh, they're copied into these books as in like copied at the time. So not photocopies, but just letters that were manuscript copied at the time. And they're in these kind of fat volumes that are generally alphabetical, but you do have to look through them. So if you're looking through one of these volumes and it's, you know, for the last name H, the first one might not be HA and the last one might be HA. So again, it's alphabetical to a point, but you still have to kind of search for your people physically within that. So let me take you through what a physical claim might look like. So in one of these volumes for Virginia, which is going to be organized at Q in AO12 or AO13 for those listening out there, who, who want the specifics. If you look at one of these volumes for any of the last names, each claim is going to have the same structure, which makes it really nice for researchers. Once you start reading a claim over and over and over again, and you read many other claims, you start to get the structure of it. So then your eyes start scanning for the information you need, which is very helpful. So claims generally open with the personal trials of the memorialists, right? And so they open up with talking about their current state and location and then the memorials would draw a line between their past persecution, right? When the rebels uh, came to Norfolk, usually most of these Virginia claims were at Norfolk, um, destroyed their property, how loyal they were to the crown back then, and how currently they are loyal. They often use the phrasing, quote, the late unhappy troubles in America. So you'll see the late unhappy troubles uh, a lot. So they'll say, Owing to the late unhappy troubles in my community, X, Y, and Z happened to me. They express basically loyalty to the crown, which doubles as a rhetorical strategy, right? They're trying to receive money here. So they're trying to prove their loyalty first and foremost in their memorialist claim, their opening, right? And then after their opening kind of statement saying, here's what's happened to me, here's where I'm living now, here's who's with me, mostly children, if if it's a woman, they then have a schedule of property. And that includes the literal physical property, enslaved people, income and debts that they say they forfeited in America, which means that the rebels stole them or took them or they were slave flight. And then these claims conclude with basically testimonials from supporters they get that 
first attest to the claimant's loyalty to the crown, because of course, loyalty is first. <laughs> Whether or not they were actually that loyal doesn't really matter. And the claim, every single one's loyal, of course, because they're trying to get money. And then the supporter also confirms the value of the property. So most of the people they, they have are either kin, so brothers-in-law, sister-in-laws, moms, dads, things like that, or more powerful people in their community. That's usually what a claim has. It has three parts, the opening memorialist statement, and then the schedule of properties showing exactly what things and people they lost and how much they are worth. So you do see it enumerated like that. So that's what a claim looks like. And again, you can have supplemental documents as well associated with the claim. So even though the claim has three parts, many people will include extra letters that they had between supporters uh, just to prove their loyalty or to prove that's how much they lost, that they're really telling the truth. Different types of documents that try to show proof of what they're saying in the claim. But that's why the loyalist claims are so great for researchers is because not only do they have a general standard organization, so you, your eyes can start knowing what you're looking for. They also have incredible detail about these people's personal lives through their property, through their kinship, and just social connections. Who they're asking to support them in their claims shows what elite level they're at or what social class they're at, what kind of connections they had, who they're related to, especially with business connections, because it's usually people with business connections who support the claimants to say, yeah, they did have this really nice house. Yes, they did have this many enslaved people who fled or who were, quote unquote, carried away. That's a, that's a term carried away by the rebels, which could mean actually enslaved people fleeing to go fight for the British because their, their, their freedom was promised if they did so. And you, you can also use these claims, particularly in Virginia, to look at Virginia slavery. So that's what I ended up looking at with my claims, was aiming my eye towards women and how they talked about their property, including enslaved people versus non-enslaved people. Yeah, what's always interested me about these materials is that sort of formulaic nature of those memorials. And it leads me to wonder what instructions someone would have received in order to submit a claim. Are they essentially handed a template and said, you know, please follow along, almost like you're submitting a job application. Those memorials, you know, they do follow a consistent pattern right down to the same language. And so are the commissioners sending out a template? Are people looking at each other's memorials? And that's kind of creating a common way to approach the commission? What's going on there? Sometimes we don't actually know how they knew this format. I do know that secretaries were the ones who are writing these affidavits down. People would come with information. So they come with those will and deed records and they would come um, with their witnesses or even already pre-written witness testimonies. And so I'm not exactly sure how exactly some of these loyalists may or may not have known the format. But I do know from going through these secretary records that they're all in the exact same hand writing. So it would be my educated guess, I'm sure there may actually be someone who does know out there, is that while they were explaining these testimonies that the secretary was the one actually writing them down in a pre-created form, because you can actually see where it says the memorial of, it's all in the same type font. Um, you know, it has been printed out in some way. And then there are like some blanks that would have been filled out. However, this couldn't have been the case always, because we know that because there are people who mailed in their claims as 
as opposed to showing up to these different these different places where commissioners were taking down this information. But yeah, as far as I have gathered, this is how this has kind of gone. When it comes to Loyalist Claims Commission, a lot of surrounding it is kind of a mystery. We don't know a lot about how some of these were taken. And one of the reasons why is because we know that some of the books from the audit office are actually missing. There are 14 books from AO12 that we know no longer exist because one of the buildings in the Somerset House, the public records office was actually broken into. Um, I can't, I don't know if that's the eight, the 1780s or 90s, but some of these books with information on how the claims commission um, was handled are actually missing. In addition to that, recently Sally Haddon had an article talking about how uh, this was this was good work for lawyers at the time. For many lawyers, the work of like asset reclamation became a full-time job. So claimants who could not go in person in London at uh, Lincoln's Infields, which is where the Loyalist Claims Commission was located. For those who could not go in person or who did not visit in person to talk to these commissioners, some who were wealthy enough could hire lawyers to interview the client or to read the correspondence of this client who might be living in Jamaica. And it's the lawyer's job to write down the correspondence or the, the claim of the client. And it's also the lawyer's job to interview the client's friends, neighbors, business partners to get those kinds of supporting documents. Uh, so the lawyer would, would ultimately transcribe these documents and mail them in with supporting papers. Like I mentioned earlier, like indentured servant contracts or land deeds or other personal correspondence that ultimately corroborated their client's case. Uh, and they would send that to the claims commissions. Well, those are both great points. And it just shows the importance of clerks and those people who are acting as intermediaries in between you know, the actual client and clerks and law the actual client and the submission of the claim and the kind of work that they're doing to shape or strengthen the hand or strengthen the appeal of a particular claim. And one of the things actually I found is quite interesting is the ways in which these some of these claims later get challenged in British courts. And hopefully at some point we've got a chapter that, that should be coming out. Shameless self-plug on the podcast here that, about that in Scotland, but we'll see. Uh, but it's such an important thing to remember sort of the people who are playing those roles and how they're actually making the whole process work, sometimes successfully for their clients, sometimes not so successfully, or at least they didn't get as much money as they were claiming. According to the rules of the Loyalist Claims Commission, only American sufferers were entitled to compensation. And that did not stop some of my women from still trying to get compensation, even if they had never lived in America. <laughs> so um, that could be a story time for later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a great point. It didn't stop British firms either. I see so many Glaswegian firms filing claims who lost property in Virginia and they're like, what about us? <laughs> Oh, no, you're not wrong. In fact, a ton of the claims that I actually went through for Virginia, um, the first time I actually went through the lowest claims, I got a little bit disheartened, uh, disheartened because I was like, oh, no, these are all Glasgow firms. These aren't actual people. Um, these are this is about merchants and business. And then when I started finding um, my actual people, I was like, OK, th these are narratives that I can work with. But you're right. There are tons of firms that try to, you know, they'll say on behalf of Virginia, too, they'll claim themselves as Virginia's Virginians since they had a Virginia business and that they weren't Virginians or Americans at all. Right. One of my women uh, named Lucy Nex, for example, she um, had a second or third husband by the time she was living in uh, London and she was working as a milliner and her husband died and that husband had rents and properties in Virginia, even though she personally had not been to Virginia in like over, over a decade and she still applied for the Lewis Claims Commission because uh, the war had ultimately disrupted her receiving her late husband 
Holman's payments from Virginia, and the war also disrupted her millinery business from selling her goods, her own personal goods, to clients in Virginia. And so she um, asked for compensation from the Loyalist Claims Commission, even though uh, she physically was not in Virginia, nor did she personally suffer anything during or anything physical in America during the American Revolution, even though her business suffered. And uh, because she was not, quote, unquote, an American sufferer, she was not compensated. Yeah, it's really interesting to see how many different strategies people employ to try to get money or try to fend off challenges to the money that they get by essentially shifting their identity when it's convenient. Absolutely. There's another fun little story that I'd like to share about widow Ellen Hatton. Ellen was somebody who, again, submitted a claim to the Loyalist Claim Commission, and she highlighted the trials that her late husband, Walter, had endured in America, but that he endured with his previous wife. Ellen was the second wife. But Ellen did not include that in her memorial. She didn't even mention that there was a first wife. So she tried to hide the fact that her husband, Walter, had married her in later in England. But a clerk somehow discovered this omission. And I, I found out from the very short and sweet mark that this clerk made that just says, claimant was never in America. So the commission rejected it. <laughs> <laughs> nice try. Nice well, try, Steph- Ellen. <laughs> Steph, who are some of the people that you've encountered in your claims? Oh, my gosh. I have this one that she just stayed out in my mind. And when Alexi first contacted me asking if I had found any um, interesting women kind of in the loyalist claims, Margaret Matthews was the very first person I sent Alexi just because her story is just, it's not a good story, but it's one of those that like really makes you sit back and think about just how, you know, difficult the revolution was for everyone, not just loyalists. Margaret, right before the Yorktown campaign, um, she was heavily pregnant and her husband came out of hiding as a loyalist. And he's one of the ones who immediately joins Cornwallis. I think he joins in September of 81. So that's right before the siege. And she's pregnant. And right after the siege of Yorktown in October, her husband's actually captured. And she finds out about this. She gets, of course, as one would, very stressed out, goes into labor and has her child. She already has I believe it's two or three older children. So, you know, this is this is her new youngest child and the child's born um, blind and deaf. And Margaret immediately attributes the birth of her child um, with some of these disabilities to the stress that she faced in the revolution, to from the whole war, to, to her husband being in the Yorktown campaign, to her husband being captured. In her loyalist claims, she sincerely believes that this is what has caused her child to be deaf and blind. Margaret, her husband, does manage to escape. And about a year or two after um, the war, they get on a boat to escape. I don't actually know what their um, route was, but a hurricane hits the boat and they end up in Jamaica and her husband is killed um, in the hurricane and they lose all of all property that she had with her is gone because it was in the shipwreck. Her other children survive. Her child who was born during the Yorktown siege survives too. And she ends up being taken care of by a Jamaican vestry. And there's actually members of this vestry who serve as witness testimony for her. So she, when she writes the Loyalist Claims Commission, even though we know now by 21st century standards that her child could not have been born with these types of disabilities just from the start of the Yorktown campaign. For Margaret, this is very real for her. And you can tell that she um, believes that she has suffered more than, you know, most people because, you know, 
know, her child she has to take care of, her husband was taken away from her. Now her husband has died in a shipwreck and she's alone. She's in a place she's never been before. She's being taken care of by a vestry. We don't know what happens to Margaret. I'm not sure what the rest of her life looks out to be, but Margaret Matthews was one of the first claims. And I don't know how, because she's an M, but she's one of the first that I came across. And hers was really one of the most captivating reads. And just one more that I will always find fascinating is from the Reverend John Agnew. He actually served as a chaplain in the Queen's own Loyal Virginia Regiment during the war. Um, He was a very outspoken Tidewater pastor loyalist. He gave lots of sermons that really upset his town. Um, He was was from Suffolk, Virginia. And um, he was just this really, really outspoken guy. In fact, Thomas Jefferson actually had to be his lawyer one time and upset over like some vestry lands. And even Thomas Jefferson was like, yeah, man, this guy is nuts in his own Jefferson way. And um, when I believe if I'm not mistaken, John Agnew's claim is about 80 pages long. And Alexi will tell you, loyalist claims do not come that big. Um, He is second only to Lord Dunmore in Virginia um, in the size of claim. He has about like 10 witness testimonies on his behalf. He submits maps with with actual actual like stars and stuff next to it to show you where his property was in Portsmouth. His narrative is phenomenal because he actually says something to the effect of, you know, history is going to judge Britain for what happened to me. And history is going to judge this claims commission on whether or not you do what you're supposed to do, which is actually help me. Um, He ends up in Fredericton, New Brunswick after the war. So he's one of those oddball characters that you just read his, you read his claim and it's actually very interesting. It's not as sad as Margaret's, um, but it's highly entertaining. I think that is a great transition to some of the gendered rhetoric that I found between men's claims and women's. And it's a little different, which isn't necessarily surprising, but the way that they were different was very surprising for me. So when I first started looking at these Virginia claims and reading claims made by men and reading claims made by these widowed women, I actually expected the type of language in the women's claims to be more emotional or motive or distressed or just more kind of emotional and destitute sounding because uh, not not because I think women are more emotional, but because uh, they themselves were going to be prescribing by this kind of ideology that women are more emotional, whereas men are supposed to be more like the financial patriarchs who are more rational, right? I mean, we could go into kind of that ideology at the time, but generally that's what I expected to find. But no, I found actually the opposite. I was surprised find that the men's claims were far more emotional in the language. And I think I have kind of a conjecture or a reason for this. So what I think is happening here is that the reason why women's claims don't show this angry, sort of emotional, destitute, fiery, emotional language is because women are already used to being dependents upon their husbands, upon the legal system in which they live. This is a patriarchal system in which um, they are supposed to be primary mothers and caretakers of the home. They are supposed to be dependent upon a patriarchal husband and caretaker who's in charge of taking care of them and the family. Men are not used to being dependent. Men are supposed to be independent and they're supposed to be the breadwinners and the legal heads of households. And if you're a man and you've lost much of your money, 
to these terrible rebels, then you're angry and you're embarrassed and you are suddenly dependent upon the Loyalist Claim Commission, upon a different legal body across the sea to help you reclaim your fortune. So the type of language I see with men is this anger and this just incensed notion that this would happen to them and an entitled language where they feel entitled to this money from the Loyalist Claims Commission because they should have never been put into this dependent position anyways by by these 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 damaged rebels. And you'll see that a lot as a quote. So I think it's really interesting. I think we're just getting at the tip of the iceberg when it comes to rhetorical differences between men's and women's claims um, and the gender nature of them. Well, both of your examples speak to the idea that the American Revolution was really a civil war, but that that for people like the Loyalists, the war does not end in 1783. It it lasts far longer into the 18th and even into the 19th century, where they're still dealing with all of the fallout of imperial secession and uh, the rise of of a new nation and exile, or in some instances, those who stayed accommodating or trying to acclimate to the new Republican, small r Republican reality. So that, that really raises the question then, how do we increase access to these documents? We've talked about the fact that some are on microfilm, they're on Ancestry.com, which is behind a paywall. The real prize is in Q in England. What's the strategy here, folks? How do we make this happen? Well, it's funny you should ask that, Jim. Um, <laughs> and I are currently working on what we would refer to as kind of a sister project um, to the Loyalism Project Maryland, um, which Ben and Kyle have been working on over the last couple of years. We are working on digitizing the Loyalist claims in Virginia, and we will be the Loyalist Project Virginia. And what we're basically wanting to do is, I told you already how horrible those microfilm copies are, right? We want to go back to the source. We want to go back to Q. We want to have these high-quality digitized to put them all on a website where we will start asking the community and also some of the classrooms in which we teach to start having these claims crowdsourced transcribed. Transcription allows access to everyone. Um, These would be free online. There would be no paywall to access them, unlike Ancestry, which you have to pay a pretty hefty amount each month to be able to access. So we would be offering these up to the public. And by having them transcribed, um, that means that they would be searchable through Google, through our own website. And another thing that we're looking to do further on in the project is actually subject tag these documents. So as people are going in, they're transcribing, we would be able to pick out words like, you know, enslaved people, where they're merchant versus farmer versus plantation owner. You know, we'd be able to tag some of these as, you know, from women, from widows. A lot of loyalist claims are actually written by children. Um, because their father had passed away and they're now the head of household and they're having to author on behalf of the father. So we, we would be able to tag and subject tag these documents to make it easier for researchers to access, but also um, create more interest in the public because there's some there's some pretty wild things in these claims that you wouldn't expect. Um, one, like I already talked about before, the John Agnew map. That is wild to me um, that he has that amazing map of Portsmouth and who owns what because he doesn't just list what he he wants you to know what his neighbors own too. 
we would give the public this phenomenal opportunity to access this history and learn more about um, the Loyalist experience. And without the Loyalist experience, you don't have the complete narrative of the American Revolution. Yes, absolutely. We are really excited to get this project going uh, to help researchers also not only kind of search by auto-tagging, but also searching just basically in alphabetical order if they want to scan these documents um, for specific last names or maybe wanting to see them in the order in which they were recorded at Q. Maybe that could tell researchers something about archival practices as well. Um, so we think there's a lot of potential for researchers, both in museum studies and history and the humanities in general, to get these transcribed and up there and free to use for the public. So what's the strategy for making this possible? As somebody who co-directs uh, a transatlantic archival-based project myself, I could answer that question, but um, but I'd rather hear what you're thinking about how you, how you actually are, are going to achieve this. And, you know, of course, I'm happy to help in any way I can. What are we thinking about here? How, how are we going to do this? Because I'm very excited and, and let's let's make it happen. Grants. Lots and lots of grants. Um, Alexi and I have a long road ahead of us in grant writing. Um, we've already been in the process of submitting some grants. However, the biggest cost of this project is the digitization of the originals. And because of COVID-19 and very small staffs at places like Q, it costs a lot of money per document to have some of these authored. And we just said Dunmore and John Agnew already have, you know, 80 to 100 pages pages of peace. So it's going to cost us in the six figures to be able to have this digitized. And then also, you know, being able to have the space to host this and put this online and also, you know, have some of the resources to have this crowdsource transcribed. Um, we're looking at, you know, some free options, some not free options. So right now, what we're, um, what really we have to get done first is some of the initial financing for this project. Yeah, financing is always the biggest challenge, but if you keep plugging ahead and you've got a good project, keep hitting that nail. You know, you can make good things happen. And maybe somebody out there in the podcast uh, space is, is listening to this and be inclined to help, or at least maybe a program officer from the National Endowment for the Humanities <laughs> would, be, would be very useful at this point. One thing I wanted to mention too, real quick, is we are very closely coming up on the hundred uh, or the two hundred and fiftieth anniversary of the American Revolution. Um, that is this decade, and as we know, the bicentennial looked—I wasn't there, but it looked like a phenomenal time. Um, however, we know from the historiography that was created from that time period, there was there was some iffy um, pro-patriotic history kind of coming out from the nineteen seventies, and we're kind of hoping with this wave of interest in loyalism, Kyle and Ben's project. A Maryland project, and then with ours coming up, that we can really highlight this history on loyalism. And, and as soon as we have this thing up and running, we'll be asking for, you know, volunteers to transcribe for us. So, you know, at least for our project, just kind of stay tuned. Well, I think it's going to be great. I think, as you say, it's a great tool for public engagement. I, you know, my head is already spinning about different kinds of courses you could construct. Let's get it done, folks. Let's get it done. Let's get it done. All right, Steph, Alexi, thanks so much. Great to see you. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll come back and give us an update on where this project is in a couple of years. Definitely. Thank you so much for having me and having Alexi. Thank you, Jen. Thanks for listening to Conversations, a production of the Center for Digital History at the Washington Library. This episode was hosted and produced by me, Jim Ambusky, with editorial assistance from Jeanette Patrick and support from Mount Vernon's Media and Communications Department. 
Our music is Witch's Brew by C.K. Martin. Be sure to rate and subscribe to Conversations wherever you get your favorite podcasts. To find out more, please check us out at georgewashingtonpodcast.com. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.